Grab a outline on the back table when you're walking in. You might want to do so. Uh, I wanted the sermon for tonight with the topic of this, this question 43 in the Baptist Catechism um, to be more polemical, to be something that will help you to be ready to defend the faith if this sort of, if a, the sort of question and engagement on this topic ever comes up in your own life. And so I'm going to be kind of just rattling through some scriptures, not actually reading them, but just citing them. But the majority of those are on the outline. I didn't print that many. I didn't expect such a big crowd tonight, especially with how um, conservative people were this morning. So it's good to see you all. Hopefully there's enough there. But again, um, the sermon for tonight will be a little bit different than typically how I would do it. And also, I don't want to, I didn't want to read every single one of those scriptures at the time, too, because I'm trying to be mindful of our time frame and the limits that we put on ourselves for tonight. But I did want to say that it is good to be back together on the evenings on the Lord's Day and back to considering what many Baptists have historically believed. That's probably already not something that many people actually even think about, that Baptists have a rich history of consistent and orthodox doctrine. And the catechism that we've been going through gives us opportunity to know what that is and to see if we are in that stream of sound doctrine as well ourselves. And the topic that we have for us tonight is one that often isn't addressed. It's at least not one that I have heard much discussion on, whether on a Sunday morning in a sermon or even at a conference, Not not a whole sermon at least. And it's the counterpart to the last question that was addressed a few weeks back before we took our break for the holidays. Last time we focused on what happens to an unbeliever at his death. And that's just a hard topic to deal with. A topic that none of us is probably excited to talk about. It's a sobering reality. All of us in this room, I'm sure, know people who, in God's sovereign and good plan, ended their time on earth separated from his love and favor, separated from his saving grace, and covenantally speaking, were in Adam rather than in Christ. And what happens to them at that moment is not pleasant to talk about. Though we have to admit, I think, that it is necessary for us to speak about these things. We can't make the mistake of not talking about what happens to people when they die just because it's hard to deal with that reality. Because you know, sometimes it is those very conversations that are the means that God uses to convert a lost sinner. Or, conversely, it becomes the motivation for us to take the Great Commission more seriously. I was glad I even heard Nick mention that when he was praying. And now, if you missed the sermon on question 42, I would direct you to our church's website uh, so you can listen to that. Pastor Nick did a good job with that a few weeks back. And that question is related to one that we have for tonight. Uh, that question that Nick taught on deals with what would happen at the death of the unbeliever, at the, at their, the time of their death. Question 43 is related, and here is that question. It's on your outline. It's what shall be done to the wicked at the day of judgment. So not the day of their death. Maybe we could say the day of their second death. Uh, Revelation talks about that. But the day of their judgment. That day in which Christ returns to consummate his kingdom. Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom. Uh, We see that throughout the gospel accounts. When Jesus and John the Baptist, even, and the disciples, they would say the kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus at, at his resurrection and he ascends into heaven 
to uh, reign at the right hand of the Father, and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. His kingdom has been inaugurated. He is the God-man on the throne, but it's not yet consummated. It'll be consummated at the parousia when he comes again. And, and this question here coincides with the topic of question 41, by the way, and that was on the benefits that believers received from Christ at the resurrection. The resurrection of believers and the day of judgment for the wicked happen at the same time. But one is obviously much more enjoyable to talk about. And so I want to approach this question this evening by first considering an increasingly popular view of what happens to the wicked at the day of judgment. And perhaps um, some would even say that it happens at the day of the death of the wicked, that they see those things as coinciding in this view. It's actually, in other words, that the day of death for the wicked is actually the day of judgment for them. We're not going to get into all those fine details this evening, but again, I was wanting tonight to be more polemical, more of something that you can have as an apologetic base, just in case this sort of discussion comes up with people that you run into. And so what I'm talking about, if you haven't guessed it already, um, concerning this question that we have in the Catechism about what happens to the death, or what happens to the wicked at the day of their judgment, is I'm, I'm, I'm talking now about this increasingly popular view of, that is known as the doctrine of an annihilationism. And after we consider annihilationism in contrast to what the Bible teaches, since, since it's a view that's growing in popularity, then we'll turn our attention to the answer that the Catechism provides and, and look at kind of briefly what that says based off of what we've already said in light of what annihilation, annihilationism teaches and how that's just unattainable as a position for a Christian to have. And, and that's, that's the issue with this, by the way. Well, that the people who are advocating for annihilationism often are professing to be Christians. So, uh, for so many in the church tonight, they would believe that the unbeliever, not tonight, but today, in, in, in the broad spectrum of modern evangelicalism, for many of them, an increasing amount, they would believe that the unbeliever, when they perish, either right away or later, there is, of course, again, some variance between different views and proponents of annihilationism, um, some even advocating for something that's called conditional immorality, but we won't really get into all those finer things tonight. Uh, but basically, annihilationism is the belief that at some point, those who die apart from the saving grace of Christ simply cease existing. Their conscience is extinguished, in other words. And the view, this view of what happens to the wicked at their death can be traced in some ways all the way actually back to the early church. Uh, the seeds of it are there, back around the time of Tertullian even, but it was more of an outliner belief then. And it never reached far acceptance. It definitely, the, the type of annihilationism that was advocated for back then definitely wasn't of the same brand that is put forth today. It was... It was definitely something that was fringe. And it wasn't until really the 19th century, till 1860, and the formation of the Christian cult, the Seventh-day Adventist, that this view of judgment became popular. But even then, it was really just reserved for the cults. It was really something that only Seventh-day Adventists believed. Jehovah Witnesses also bought into it. But then a popular evangelical minister, an Anglican evangelical minister named John Stott, who was a disciple of MLJ, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he popularized this view for evangelicals around the time of the mid-20th century. And since then, it seems to have become increasingly popular. 
So much so that if you haven't ran into someone yet who affirms annihilationism, you're bound to soon, especially if you talk about the realities of hell and eternal damnation. Why is this the case? Why are there so many today who are seeming to opt for believing that God destroys whole persons, body and soul, rather than subjecting them to eternal punishment? We could speculate, maybe it's a low view of God's holiness, Maybe it's a a redefining of the love of God that fits their standard, a poor reading of scripture, perhaps all of the above. But if we're willing to be charitable, we could say that the doctrine uh, of hell is one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian faith for many people. A pastor and author, Dana Ortland, gives that admission himself. And he goes on to say, "I, I feel acutely the unremitting sadness of this doctrine. And I'm not a you know, betting man by any means, but I have a feeling that there are many here who would say amen to Ortland's confession. You know, the doctrine of hell. It, sh- should, it wouldn't be wrong to produce in you a sadness, a, a, a confusion maybe perhaps over you know, the necessity of it all. Uh, that part of that is our sinful nature, rebelling against the truthfulness of who God is and what God has revealed to us. But it wouldn't be unnatural. Uh, hell is a Christian doctrine that is just often hard for people to deal with. But to be a Christian is, at the very least, to confess Christ as Lord and Redeemer. And to confess Christ as Lord and Redeemer, and at the very least, that means that we need to submit to his teachings. And this includes his teaching on hell as well, which he wasn't shy about. He himself was not shy about this topic. Anselm of Canterbury once said that we should give thanks for whatever of the Christian faith we can understand with our minds. But when we come to something that we don't understand, we should bow our heads in reverent submission. That seems like godly and wise advice to me. We've talked before um, on during the Sunday evening services even that we as creatures can't perfectly understand all of God's ways and all of his truth. We apprehend them in so much as his grace permits us to and his divine providence ordains for us to. But we can't fully comprehend everything. And when something is difficult for a professing Christian to understand, like the doctrine of hell is for so many, well, that doesn't give us the liberty then to simply have the option to pick and choose from what the Bible teaches. Uh, We are actually, as Christians, as disciples of Christ, to submit to the Word's authority over us. And so whatever the Bible says, because the Bible is living and active, it is the Word of God, and we should submit unto it. So in 1997, J.I. Packer, another Anglican, he wrote a brief article in, in Reformation and Revival magazine reviewing the debate over annihilationism among evangelicals. It, in his historical summary, he defines annihilation, annihilationism as follows. He says, what is at issue? The question is essentially exegetical, meaning how we draw out the meaning of the Bible, right? He's wanting to be charitable. Again, the people who are advocating for annihilationism are often professing Christians, and it's not just the Christian cults now. It's Protestants, many Protestants as well. And so he's wanting to be charitable, and he says that the question is essentially exegetical, though with theological and pastoral implications. It boils down to whether when Jesus said that those 
banished at the final judgment will go away into eternal punishment, Matthew 25, 46. He envisioned a state of penal pain that is endless or an ending of conscious existence that is irrevocable. That is, for this is how the question is put, a punishment that is eternal in its length and or in its effect. And then Packer goes on to describe some current variations within annihilationism in light of the 19th century origins of it. And he offers two pastoral points. He says, one, hell should not be abstracted from the gospel. And that's ultimately what the annihilationist does. Is he, he, it's not part of the gospel because he can't see any good news as part of it. He's not able to see the holiness of God that demands such things. And then secondly, views about hell should not be con- determined by considerations of comfort. In other words, it shouldn't be our emotions that drive our decisions uh, and of what we believe about hell. He then proceeds to offer responses to four common objections for annihilationism and pa- Packer's counterarguments. Are, are helpful and they're clarifying as to why annihilation fails under scrutiny. And so we'll just go through these one by one. I'll try to talk, talk them through. Number one, the, the thing that annihilationists make an error in is they have confusion on what eternal means. So the, the first argument is of necessity an attempt to explain endlessness, e- eternality, everlastingness. And this is what uh, Matthew 25, 46 says. And again, all these vo- verses, almost all of them, I should say, are going to be on your outline. It says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Granted that, as it is rightly urged, eternal in the Greek, aeonion in the New Testament means belonging to the age to come, rather than expressing any sort of direct chronological notion the New Testament writers were unanimous in expecting the age to come to be unending. They never speak of it as having an end. And so the annihilationist problem remains really where it was. The assertion that the age to come life is the sort of thing that goes on while punishment is the sort of thing that ends begs the question. Uh, Basil Atkinson is a man who influenced John Stott. And he wrote this. He said, when the adjective aeonion means everlasting, is used in the Greek with nouns of action, it has reference to the result of that action, but not the process. Thus, the phrase everlasting punishment is comparable <coughs> excuse me, to everlasting redemption and everlasting salvation, both scriptural phrases. The loss will not be passing through a process of punishment forever, but will be punished once and for all with eternal results. So that's one way the annihilationist looks to get around the plain meaning of scripture. You notice what he said. He says, they not be passing through a process of punishment forever, but will be punished once and with eternal results. So the, the, the finality of it is eternal, but not the actual punishment itself. Though this assertion is frequently made by informed annihilationists who would otherwise uh, couldn't get their position really off the ground for this, it, it lacks the support of the study of the original languages, of what that word actually means. And further, it begs the question by assuming punishment is momentary rather than a sustained event. While not perhaps like absolutely impossible, the reasoning seems unnatural, it's evasive, and the final assessment really is dangerous because why not then apply the same logic to eternal life? It's not consistent. 
right? It's the same word for eternal life, eternal punishment, yet they want to say eternal punishment stops but has everlasting consequence, yet why not say the same thing then about eternal life? It's an inconsistent way to handle the scriptures. It's not the way that anybody who is really trying to approach the languages seriously would want to do. Hopefully that's clear. Secondly, they have confusion on the immortality of the soul. Uh, the second common argument is that once the idea of immortality of the soul, I, in other words, the conscious person, is set aside as the platonic intrusion into second century exegesis, it will appear that the only natural meaning of the New Testament imagery of death and destruction of fire and darkness as indicators of the destiny of unbelievers is that such persons cease to be. What, what Packer means there when he says that is that some people want to accuse the notion of a fiery eternal judgment as an eternal fiery judgment as simply a byproduct of Greek philosophy and not Bible study. You hear that conversation a lot today, actually. If you're paying attention to things going on in Christendom, I haven't been on Twitter a whole lot lately myself, but there's a lot of discussion right now about classical theology. There's a lot of pushback against Aquinas, who people say Aquinas has his roots in Platonic thought. And so this is similar to that kind of reasoning. But is that actually what has happened? I think that this objection fails under inspection. For evangelicals, the analogy of Scripture, which is the method of interpretation which says that confusing or difficult passages of Scripture are best understood by more clear Bible verses of the same topic, it forces us to reject the notion that hell is just commonly understood as platonic thought. And although there are texts which, taken in isolation, might carry nihilist implications, others can't be naturally fitted into the form of this scheme. And so no proposed theory of the Bible's meaning that doesn't cover all of the Bible's relevant statements can be true. If you're going to form a doctrine, if you want to advocate for a doctrine, if you say that the Bible contains a doctrine and you're wanting to advocate for that, well, then you have to deal with all the texts that are speaking about that specific topic. You can't leave out the ones you don't like. So texts like, and these are all on your outline, Jude 6, Matthew 8:12, Matthew 22:13, Matthew 25:30 shows that darkness signifies a state of deprivation and distress, not of destruction in the sense of ceasing to exist. After all, only those who exist can weep and gnash their teeth, as those banished into the darkness are said to do. Right? If you're, if that <laughs> weeping and gnashing of teeth means it's just going to stop existing, well. If you stop existing, well, then you can't weep and gnash your teeth. And nowhere in Scripture does death signify extinction. Physical death is departure into another mode of being, called Sheol or Hades often, and nothing in the biblical testimony warrants the idea that the second death mentioned in Revelation 2.11, 2014, again, those are on your note sheet, or even 21.8, means or involves cessation of being. The annihilationist rigidly has to put their understanding over the plain meaning of those texts. Moreover, Luke 16, 22-24 shows that as in a good deal of extra-biblical apocalyptic literature, fire signifies continued existence in pain. Let's, let me read that verse for you, at least Luke um, 16, 24. This, of course, is a familiar passage. It's the, it's the story of rich man and Lazarus. It's hard to tell if this is actually a parable 
or if this is something more than that because it doesn't really fit the structure of most parables. But verse 24, and this is on your outline, says, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. You know, if, if it's not eternal punishment, then how are you feeling something? He wouldn't be. Uh, the chilling words of Revelation 10 or 14:10 with 19:20 and 20:10 and Matthew 13, 42 and 50, all on your note sheet again, they all confirm this. In 2 Thessalonians 1:9, Paul explains or extends the meaning of, of punished with, ev- with everlasting destruction by adding that they are shut out from the presence of the Lord, which, by affirming exclusion in that text, it rules out the distinction that destruction means, or the, 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 it rules out the idea that destruction means extinction. Only those who exist can be excluded, right? If you don't ex- exist, how can you be excluded? It's, it's a non sequitur. It doesn't matter at all. And Packer notes, it has often been pointed out that in Greek, the natural meaning of the destruction vocabulary, which is the noun olathros and the verb apolemi, is wrecking. So what's that that's destroyed is henceforth non-functional rather than annihilated altogether. Annihilated would mean just destroyed, not usable, but wrecked means you could see it there in a pile, in a heap. Okay, it's, it's different. Annihilationists respond with special pleading here. Sometimes they... They urge that such references to continued distress refer only to the temporary experience of the loss before they're extinguished. So in other words, so some will say that like, well, there is some suffering, but it's only for a little bit, and then they're annihilated. But that also is to beg the question with eisegesis. Eisegesis is reading your own meaning into a passage of the text. And to give up the original claim, the New Testament imagery of eternal loss naturally implies extinction. That's their, that's their view. Robert Peterson quotes from Stott, which he calls the best case for annihilationism, the following words. He says, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Revelation 14, 11, you might remember that verse. Well, he says, the fire itself is termed eternal and unquenchable, but it would be very odd if what was thrown into it provides indestructible. So his view is kind of thinking naturalistically. If, if we put something into a fire, Eventually, that fire will consume it and it will be annihilated, right? It will go away. That's how he's thinking of, of God and eternal destruction here. He says our expect, expectation would be the opposite. It would be consumed forever, uh, not tormented forever. Hence, it is a smoke, in other words, evidence that the fire has done its work, which rises forever and ever. But then on the contrary, Peterson replies, our expectation would be that smoke would die out once the fire had finished its work too. Right? But the fact actually that the smoke is going on forever and ever actually implies that the fire is going on forever and ever. And because it's burning, it is eternal punishment that is happening forever and ever at the same time. And the rest of the verse confirms our interpretation. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image. And annihilationists don't really have an answer for this. Mm-hmm. So at every point, the linguistic ar- argument simply fails. To say that some texts, taken in isolation might mean annihilationism, proves nothing when other texts evidently do not. Now, the analogy of scripture is your valuable friend in this discussion, friends. Uh, you don't want to do like, but what about-ism sort of a thing when people are, are talking to you. But you, you do want to try to help people to see, well, if you're understanding this, 
how does that make sense in light of, you know, Revelation 14:11? And, and draw those things together. Third, there's a confusion on God's holiness. Uh, the, the third annihilationist argument is that for God to visit punitive retribution endlessly on the lost would be disappropriate and unjust. And I gotta tell you, this is the most common argument that you hear, especially from those who aren't really wanting to attach their their defense of having this view to what the word says. It's an emotional appeal. And it's often a blinding thing. Well, God is love. How can he punish someone forever? It just doesn't fit with their image of God, and that's unfortunate because it just simply means that their image of God is an image of God that isn't contained in Scripture. John Stott, he wrote, I question whether eternal conscious torment is compatible with the biblical revelation of divine justice, unless perhaps, as has been argued, the rebellion of the lost continues throughout eternity. Notice, let me repeat what Stott says here, because remember, again, Stott is an annihilationist, and he was, he's the evangelical Anglican who's really responsible for making this doctrine popular today. He says, I question whether eternal conscious torment is compatible with the biblical revelation of divine justice, unless perhaps, as has been argued, um, the rebellion of the lost also continues throughout eternity. The uncertainty expressed in Stott's perhaps is strange, for there is no reason to think that the, resurrect, uh, the resurrection of the lost for judgment will change their character. And there's every reason to suppose that their rebellion and their, and their impenitence will continue as long as they themselves do, uh, making, them con- making continued banishment from God's fellowship fully appropriate. It's not like, in other words, the point is this, when the, at the last day, when the wicked are resurrected to eternal punishment, it's not like they're at that point then no longer opposed to God. It's not, they continue in their rebellion to God. And they continue in that rebellion for eternity, never leaving that state. And, and actually, probably I would have to think that their rebellion increases even in that eternal state. And so eternal punishment then is perfectly consistent because they are continuing eternally in rebellion to the Lord. But, leaving that aside, it's apparent apparent that the argument, if valid, would prove too much and end up undermining the annihilationist's own case. And so again, remember, this is is their emotional plea. But they, they need to think more clearly about this. Because as if the argument applies, if it is needlessly cruel for God to keep the lost endlessly in being to suffer pain, because his justice doesn't require it, how then can the annihilationist justify, in terms of God's justice, the fact that he makes them suffer post-mortem pain at all? Because remember, most annihilationists will at least say that at the day of their death, they are experiencing punishment. But at the day of judgment, that's when they're annihilated. And so, why then, the point that we're trying to understand here that Packer is making, is why even have any suffering at all? Because at that point, it, it, you're just they're shooting themselves in the foot, essentially. Why would not justice, which on this view requires their annihilation in any case, not be satisfied by annihilation at death? Those annihilationists who want to be more biblical cannot evade the expectation of the final resurrection judgment of unbelievers alongside believers admit that God doesn't do this. And some even admit that there will be pain afflicted after judgment and prior to extinction. But 
honestly, what's the point of that junction? What is the point? It, what, the point is that they're trying to be faithful to Scripture because you see it there. But they don't want to give up their emotional, preconceived view of God. That's ultimately what it is. You see, if God's justice requires no more than extinction, if that could satisfy his justice, and therefore it doesn't require this, the pain becomes needless cruelty. And God is in effect accused of the very faults of which annihilationists are anxious to prove him not, uh, are innocent of, and condemn the Christian mainstream from implying. Right? So if an, if an annihilationist wants to be consistent, and maybe you could even tell them this, then they should really be advocating for annihilation at that very moment of death. Otherwise, it's just needless suffering and pain. But the problem is they're going to have a hard time with the scriptures and, and putting that forth. However, if God's justice really does require some penal pain in addition to <coughs> annihilationism and continued hostility and rebellion Godward on the part of unbelievers remains a post-mortem fact there will be no moment at which it will be possible for either God or man to say that enough punishment has been inflicted, that no more is deserved and any more would be unjust. You see that, I hope, that if wicked and fallen man continues forever in his rebellion, then there is no problem with the punishment being out of step, right? That if he continues in rebellion, the punishment can therefore also continue uh, in the same length. Packer says the argument then boomerangs on its opponents, impaling them inescapably on the horns of this dilemma. They have to come to grips with this. And then lastly, the, the last point that the annihilationist likes to make, or the reason that they get hung up, is there's confusion on our ability to understand. The fourth argument that you'll commonly hear is that the saints' joy in heaven would be marred by knowing that some continue under merited punishment. I mean, think about it. To be fair, it's something to consider. How will we enjoy heaven, knowing when, knowing that your parents, your children, aren't there with you? That is that is one of the arguments that they want to use. And so they'll say, well, they don't actually suffer torment forever, eternally. God annihilates them. He erases their conscience, their consciousness. He just they just cease to exist. But this cannot be said of God as if the expressing of his holiness in retribution and judgment hurts him more than it hurts his offenders. And since in heaven, Christians will be like God in character, loving that which he loves and taking joy in his self-manifestation, including the manifestation of his justice, in which indeed the saints in Scripture take joy already in this world even, there is no reason to think that their eternal joy will be impaired in this way. There's no reason to actually think that when we are in glory, that we will have, we will be suffering with, under the understanding that some people that we loved are, in, are not there with us. R.C. Sprawl notes, and I'm paraphrasing here, that this is hard for us to understand now, but when we are in glory, we will simply know that God is right. And our knowledge of people not being in heaven won't be something that causes us sadness, Rather, we would never think to disagree with God's wisdom, and he'll be praised for it at that time. So, those are their four main arguments. And, and again, if at some point you are engaging with people about the reality of hell, I mean, if you're doing evangelism, that eventually comes up. 
Because, well, why should I believe in God? Why should I trust in God? Well, of course, because God is God and you're his creature, and so therefore there's that demand there. But also, there's punishment and hell for you if you do not. And then, eventually, at some point, you will run into these people. And so hopefully, this will kind of serve as a framework for by which you can engage with them. But I also want to see what the Catechism says. Because annihilationism, as you'll find it expressed today, it simply didn't exist when the Baptist Catechism was first drafted. Nevertheless, the answer that the Catechism supplies is a helpful tool that you can call on in making positive cases for what the Bible teaches. It's not easy discussing and engaging one who affirms annihilationism, especially one who attempts to use the Bible to make their case, because they're often adverse in, in emotional reasoning. But and we're emotional people as well, and that type of reasoning can catch you off guard if you're really not prepared and thinking about it. But the Catechism provides a clear and concise answer from God's Word. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, just because I think we hit most of this in light of considering modern, the modern attack against the doctrine of the Day of Judgment and eternal damnation. But the Catechism answer says this, At the Day of Judgment, the bodies of the wicked, being raised out of their graves, shall be sentenced together with their souls to unspeakable torment, with the devil and his angels forever. The point being, friends, that death does not end at all. Our physical death does not end at all. And Nick talked about this last time we had a Sunday evening service. Death for the wicked is not a ceasing of existence. And when Christ returns, this day will be known as the day of judgment for the wicked, and their suffering will continue forever, just as the joy of the believer continues forever. These are parallel truths. We're going to get into this more on Sunday mornings, our time in 1 Corinthians 15, but note what the answer says in the first place. The, the day of judgment, the bodies of the wicked. Right, right now, people who have died in Christ, meaning that they are saved, are in an intermediate state of heaven. It's not the new heavens and the new earth. That will come when Christ comes again. And those believers who are presently in this intermediate state of heaven, they do not have a body. It's a spiritual existence lacking a body in which the comforts and the joys of heaven are experienced spiritually. Only Jesus has a glorified body at this moment. But when Christ comes, he's the firstborn among many brethren, right? And so when Christ comes again, every believer will also inherit a glorified body too, a resurrected body. And these people will live with the Lord and fellowship with him forever. We're going to hit this on Sunday mornings very shortly. And right now at the same time, People who have died and are in Adam, meaning that they're not saved, are in an intermediate state of hell, of the grave, of death and Hades. It's not the lake of fire. That will come when Christ comes again and judges them. And those rebellious sinners who are in the grave or Hades right now don't have a body. It is a spiritual existence, lacking a body in which punishment and torment is taking place spiritually. But when Christ comes again at the parousia, every rebel sinner who would, of course, still be in a state of rebellion, will get a resurrected body as well. And these people, body and soul, will be subject to unspeakable torments with the, as the enemies of God forever, as the answer proclaims, as annihilationism wants to disagree with. The Catechism cites John 5, 28, 29 here. Listen to this. It's plain. It's hard to twist, I would think. John 5, 28, and 29. <clears throat> He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Two kinds of resurrection, one to life, one to judgment. And it's bodily, I hope you see that. And the unrighteous or the unconverted shall be raised from the dead to stand before the eternal Son of God to be finally judged and fully judged. And this judgment happens precisely because God is holy and righteous. There's some confusion among believers on this topic over the years that I've read, but I personally at least think it's best to not consider wrath as an attribute of God. Rather, wrath is the outworking of God's holiness and his justice and his righteousness in light of sin. And because God is holy and righteous in his character, it necessitates a final day of judgment for the ungodly, for his wrath to be displayed. Mankind as an image bearer is a responsible, intelligent being, and the the nature of this man demands that justice be met. The reality, and I was talking about a sister today, just this morning, who had a grave injustice done to her, is that evil is not always punished in this life. Of course, at the same time, good always isn't rewarded either. But because of that, there's often this sense of dissatisfaction, of unrest, due to the reality that wickedness seems to get away with it. That it seems to just go on and continue, and sometimes even, you know, righteousness gets the short end of the stick. I mean, we, might, we, we see this even right now with the way the church is being treated across the world. But that, what the Bible actually teaches is that justice is never forgotten about. It might not come right away, but it most certainly does come. No one ever fully gets away with any sin. A rebel sinner may escape the eyes and justice of fellow image bearers, but no one escapes the eyes of God. And there, there is a day of judgment coming. And any injustice that happens today, for whatever God's purposes are, if it, does, if it gets forgotten today, it will not be forgotten on that last day. Justice always comes because God is holy. And this judgment will consist of unspeakable torments, the catechism affirms. We mentioned some of them earlier, constant fire, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What I ultimately think the torment will be, and I think the scripture is describing it through things like weeping and gnashing of teeth and and flames, is that the rebellious image bearer will be subjected to the holiness of God. The very thing that the forgiven sinner enjoys and glories in will be the source of anguish for the one who hates God, and yet is before the Lord with no mercy and grace available to him. I think of how many times the scripture we read that you couldn't see the Lord, for seeing the Lord you would fall down and die. Moses was only able to see the backside of him. Again, it's the, the holy, the glory of the Lord, uninhibited, and, and the Lord just letting it out there before the rebellious sinner is not something that that wicked person will enjoy. But it's the very thing that those who are in Christ love and need and get the pleasure of experiencing for eternity. And bless you. And brothers and sisters, unless you have some sort of issue with your conscience in which God is working on you, um, the reality of an eternity of judgment should cause you to be zealous for sharing the gospel. Now, I agree with Sprawl when he, when he said that when we get to heaven, we won't be in a state of constant remorse over those who are in hell. But now, while we have the opportunity, we should be broken over this fact. And, and because we aren't God, and we don't know who will repent, 
we should spread the gospel call to repent from sins and trust in Christ far and wide. This is, this is one of the reasons really why I detest annihilationism and why I wanted to use most of our time thinking of their argument. Because even though, of course, I think annihilationism twists scripture, it also, I believe, reduces our desire to share the gospel with the lost ultimately. Because simply not existing at some point isn't that bad. It still loses, it's still bad, but it loses much of its compelling force which the reality of an eternal time of suffering encourages. And so friends, because of the reality of eternal judgment awaits the lost, let's be zealous in sharing the gospel. Let's pray for grace that we may be used to help the elect see to receiving the inheritance won for them by Christ. It's true that no more will be saved than what are written in God's book of life, but God ordains the end as well as the means. And the the means as well as the end. And the reality that there is an eternal judgment is certainly a means that God uses to compel those who have received grace to be workers in his plan of redemption. So let's pray, and then if you have any questions or further discussion, we could get to those. Our Father in heaven, the reality of hell is sobering, Lord. I know it's not something that we often think about. We admit, God, that we don't even think about simply death that often, even though your word instructs us to number our days, to see wisdom in that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to believe what your word says. We live in a culture right now uh, that wants to form you in their image, even uh, the doctrines that are plainly set forth in scripture. And so we ask, Lord, that you would make us to be understanding, that you would help us to be bold in declaring the truth. And should we have anybody that uh, comes before us who has bought into this modern no- notion of what happens at the day of judgment. Help us, Lord, to remember what your word says. Let's not be ashamed of it, God. Uh, emotional pleas, we understand, are, are hard to deal with, and emotion often blinds many. But, Lord, we, we thank you for emotion, but let us not have it in a disordered position, God. Um, Your word is first. You are preeminent. And may our lives and every bit of us be conformed to what your word says. Uh, We pray, Lord, for our families that none would have to taste the fires of eternal damnation. And we ask for mercy for them. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to your word and to be ready to be used of you in any way that you desire. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So anything? Only two topics on judgment. We're going to be changing the topic again coming next week, getting into the law of God. But that would make sense, I think, having dealt with uh, eternal salvation, now judgment, now we're going to get into the law of God to see how that plays into the scheme of God's plan of redemption. But,
Yeah. I I've got his Romans commentary. Yeah, Good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I got a couple of his commentaries yeah. too, and he's a lot right about a lot of a lot of things, but there's some pretty serious errors. Yeah. And I didn't even touch the concept of, you know, can you affirm annihilationism and be saved? <laughs> because I think that's 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 gonna be your question. Don't ask me that. <laughs> because <laughs> I uh argument is Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. What made me really think I was here? I thought he was. I, where would you go? Oh, so he just oh, came to inform us? Yeah, well, I was just messaging him saying, hey, man, you know, wish you were here. And, you know, because this, this for me, I, I remember even Raymond got me on the mix with his brother. <coughs> I think a lot of Christians, like, I, a lot of the things he said tonight was a lot of my arguments. Yeah, I've never been that guy's name, like uh, uh, Rogius or from third century or whatever. There were people who brought it up, and they were resisted as heretics then, and they've been resisted as heretics now. And it's more than you know, watering down, like you said. It's almost robs us of our zeal for the gospel. You know, somebody who's being what's the end for me was really doing. teachers right. yeah I, I'm honestly I'm because mo- I don't really hear pastors coming at me this I usually hear people in the pews that come to me and I think they're coming from more of a position of wanting to figure it out wanting to understand the 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 benevolence and the love of God in light of this and that's why I like sprawls point like right now maybe we don't totally understand it but when we get to heaven it's not going to be an issue Ivan, did you want to? No, no, no. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, um, I'd say it's very, very, very dangerous to not affirm an eternal hell. Could be, you know, yeah. that you're lost, but thinking more, you know, thinking more about it, I try to be generous and, and let the, the established channels be ran through. So there would be, you know, discussion and discipline. And you think, too, like, do any of the councils condemn annihilationism, uh, the church council? Like when, we say, like, when we define heresy, it's hard to define heresy sometimes. You don't want to just throw that word out because then really you're talking about a, personal, a person then experiencing the eternal, eternal damnation, the very thing that, that these people in this category are wanting to um, disaffirm. And so it's just I'm slow to affirming that. I would be cautious, though. I, I wouldn't say that's. I wouldn't say it's a viable position. I would say it's a heter, heterodox at best. Yeah. Yeah. I said, I'm not talking about someone like that's confused or struggling, yeah, or misunderstanding something by choosing a thing, but someone who's embracing something. Like a John Stott, I think that him and MLJ, their relationship was severed over it. So. It's funny you bring that up. I'm 
Okay. <clears throat> oh, Stephen, sorry. No, 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 I was just going to mention all the heterodox Okay. Okay. I think it depends on case by case. You know, I think some person could be heterodox with it because they're trying to pull some verses out of context. They don't realize that. But other persons could perhaps be heretical with it because they understand the breadth of Scripture, and yet they're rejecting what Scripture plainly seems to say. So go ahead. And my I'll ask you why that was. Okay. Yeah, Brandon? Well, I know earlier you said that, uh, well, I guess I'll ask the first one. It's mainly a two-part. Okay. Is love an attribute of God? <clears throat> so God has what's called um, like communicable and incommunicable attributes. Uh, love, I think, is typically defined as a communicable attribute. That it is, you know, something that God has, and and again, talking about God's attributes is, is kind of dangerous territory because we don't, because God is simple. He's not all these attributes together. He's he's all of these things all the time. God is all that God is. So, I I, I don't have like an all the attributes listed in my mind, but I, I am almost pretty certain that love is typically considered to be an attribute. Does anybody know whether or not? I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. So, since that's the case, and how do you say that wrath is an attribute? Oh, I got you. Yeah, that's a good question. So, when we think of the attributes of God, God is eternal, God is simple, He's not dependent upon anything. Um, so, I think where theologians typically struggle, and that's why I say it's debatable, so I land on this other end. Um, before there was anything created, in, which, in what way would wrath be exhibited or displayed? There was no sin, there was no rebellion, uh, there, was no, there was no wrath among the Godhead. But there was holiness, there was righteousness. And so when sin entered in, then holiness and righteousness um, was, dis- was displayed through God's wrath against it. Uh, so, that, so that's why I think that's better. It's, it's a debatable topic. I, I, I don't think that, uh, there are solid Reformed theologians that say wrath is an attribute of God. And I don't want to, like, you know, have it to be a hill to die on for me. I just, when I think of, like, the, well, the fact that God is the, all of who he is and his attributes aren't, like, pieces to a puzzle of him, well, in what way was wrath part of God before he created and there was any sin? Oh. 
point where his holiness demanded that these these uh, would be expressed yeah. and the requirements of that is so it kind of goes back to the time of the devil trying to understand and <coughs> if he divides these things properly, then other other forms of things uh, yeah. fall away. But I think when you you know when you look at the scriptures, I think when you try to reach someone who isn't reformed and they they point those things out, it's more helpful to have this position because you can meet them where they are and then you know try to demonstrate where they're where they're off at. It was interesting to hear uh, the idea of the rebelliousness of the reprobated hell increasing over time. I hadn't really thought of that, but it, it makes sense because the, the very thing that gets you to hell is this sense of rebelliousness against the, the lordship of God and his authority. And so there is this futility. And it's almost like you think about Satan. Why does he rage against God knowing he cannot win? Well, he can't do anything else. That's what he does. Yeah. What yeah. he is. Um, so, in light of that, it made me think of Philippians. I was wondering if you could kind of give me your take on this. When I think about Philippians 2, where it says in verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I've always read that in a sense of ultimate victory that God will have, even in the judgment of the wicked, that there will be a, they will be forced to acknowledge mm-hmm. that God is truly God, that their knees will be forced to bow, whereas those who are the elect will be bowing in humble adoration and love, grateful to be able to worship this God that is good, but that the, repar- the wicked would be, in a sense, crushed. They would be forced to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord on their way to a judgment. Am I reading that wrong? Is that better understood to be more that every knee of the elect will bow, that all all that he has ordained to bow will bow, that the reprobate will remain uh, indignant and will not bow? It, it almost seems to me like... Uh, so, I, don't, I hadn't thought of that. I... I would, I've understood that as so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. I understood it everybody. Everybody, right? Everybody, yeah. But that doesn't, but to simply bow, I think, and recognize that, you know, Jesus, that isn't necessarily mean that they're worshiping him. Right. I think they're still, you know, they're still in their sins. They're still being tormented. They're forced to say that because of who God is. Yet, nevertheless, they're not saying it joyfully yeah. or happily. But I think about yeah. the same in Job when he's forced to come into the throne room of God to report what he's been doing. It's yeah. Like, he doesn't have, he doesn't want to be doing that. You know, he, the power of God is making him Compared get out, right? So yeah. he's, he's rebellious at heart, but he's doing it because he has to. He cannot, he can't do otherwise. The power of the Lord is going to overwhelm him, so. Yeah. Even demons, when they would see Jesus, they, what, they, what do you want me to do? Him. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. There was no doubt about that. But yeah, so I always took that as meaning that they would be doing that, but they wouldn't be happy about doing yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah Abby. Um, so, I, essentially, where did the topic or notion um, come from that the common belief, at least that I used to believe and that I personally believe, that we sort of how you tortured how the devil and his minions 
<laughs> yeah, right. The catechism says that you're going to be there tormented with the devil and his angels, right? Um, I, cartoons? Honestly, I think. So I remember, it was like, I don't know, they don't even have these cartoons on TV anymore, but like Looney Tunes and like the uh, Tom and Jerry cartoons and stuff like that. I, I think I remember watching those as a kid, and that's what you would think. Yeah, they would go to hell, and there there'd be the old pitchfork devil, and they would be prodding them and having them do stuff. But I, it's not from the biblical data. From a slightly more refined medium, maybe Milton's Paradise Lost, where <laughs> Satan so yeah, the in his own rebellion says, it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So he would rather reign in this place of destruction. He's deceived in himself. He's not reigning. You know, the, he's going to be punished himself. He will be subjugated. He'll be forced to bow and confess as well. So the idea that hell is just like where all the rebellious people go and they get to have their own little place down there and Satan's in charge and you get to treat you badly, that's false. That's not biblical. Yeah. yeah I mean, it probably comes from the same notion. I, I, I think. I believe say, oh, well, it'd be more fun in hell. They get to party. But it's like, I'm going to party with <laughs> <laughs> That's the other way. The feast yeah. is the other way. Satan is in hell now. No. He eventually has to bow to God when God come, when Jesus comes again. Yeah, I would say that Satan's underneath the authority of God right now. It's not that he's not bound right. He tries to rebel as much as the Lord allows him to. He does rebel in a sense, and that he's working iniquity among people. But uh, he's it's not that he's that he is free now. He'll be bound. He's under the worship of God. Is it Luther or Calvin that says he's God's devil? Yeah, yeah one of those guys. Okay. Is it pink? Yeah. Oh, I haven't heard that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Or Tariq is reading that, I think, right now. Yeah. He wasn't. Yeah, there was one question I had, too. It's a little more of a, I want to say, extremely difficult, but it's kind of, it's kind of like the catechism of the Jewish supposedly we were talking about. And, you know, people are in the Bible right now, right? And I know there's a lot of overlap in our understanding when we get into Abraham's bosom and, you know, we can see it. And that practically does say that, you know, his tongue is, you know. Parched or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And then, so, would that be in your understanding that intermediate, like, because obviously before, we never, just like we never heard the Old Testament with Angela's kingdom, we never heard, um, you know, absence in the body, the presence of the Lord, until after the resurrection, right? So, yeah. There was this intermediate state where we saw the pits of gold for the Sabbath and life. So, I think I'm pretty sure James White, I remember hearing him say that that's what he believes that. So, because there is that one tricky passage in Matthew where after the resurrection, the tombs are open and all these corpses are walking around or whatever. And that's like, it just says it in passing and yeah, doesn't like, it's like, yeah, oh, this is a normal you know, thing to talk about. Um, but, you know, so usually people really like who are big on like the A&E types, especially too, and will want to say that, yeah, that before the resurrection and the crucifixion, that the, that 
Sheol was this place where there was divided, uh, where the righteous and the unrighteous would go. And you know, Abraham's bosom would be that aspect where the righteous would be and the unrighteous would be in you know, the, the grave aspect of it. And it could be. It could be true. I mean, but I think that when we apply like hermene- hermeneutics and rather they understand that revelation is progressive and the fact that I think there's a continuity through um, the scriptures, I think what happens is that in the explanation of this, this doctrine, it just wasn't revealed as fully. And so I, I te- so I, and then maybe this is a cop-out position, to be honest, if I'm trying to be real. I, but I think that, um, you know, what, the way that it exists now is the way that it has always existed. Uh, it's, it's clear in the New Testament. Again, the analogy of Scripture. It's kind of unclear. It could be seen like that. If you look at some of those old texts. Luke 16 was trying to... To form a doctrine on that. Right. He, he, was wanting to make, he was wanting to make a point about, you know, you had Moses to, to tell yeah. you. And so I think that if you, you look at the revelation given in the Old Testament, you possibly could come away to that. But if you look at and we want to affirm a unity between the Testaments, you don't have that now, certainly. And so, Jesus, even on the cross, you will be with me today in oh, paradise. That's the, the good you know, side of it, too. So, I tend to not think that there was a difference than like, pre-cross and post-cross. But I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's I've got a good book that I just, I have too many books to read, but uh, Renahan, uh, something crux the more it's about um he wants to make the case that christ did descend to hell so you know, like the apostles creed and stuff and that tricky passage it was in peter second yeah. peter yeah and so i haven't read it yet but i am almost certain that in that book he'll advocate for that distinction that in before the um the resurrection that there was this sheol that was divided and then it's different than what we have now, or this intermediate state of heaven and and the grave. So. Yeah, I saw that position for yeah. about a decade, and just questioning how, you know, some of me is helpful. I don't I, I think the hard part is that <coughs> we get in wrong, and we go down wrong rabbit trail. And they often got a lot of things that our Lord had to correct them in thinking that just because they believe them didn't make it, you know, infallible. So those are. Yeah, I wanted my plan was to read it before last year's um, Easter, so then I could be shocking. (laughs) But I didn't have time (laughs) because who? uh, Most of us as evangelicals, we know Christ didn't descend to hell, you know, and so I think that that uh, there's a position that I think maybe we overreact to those who want to say that sometimes too. I think there might be a way in which we can understand it that is in accordance with Scripture. And it's good to have our positions cha- challenged, at least. So, without yeah. Well, I don't know what he says. So. <laughs> but anything he, anything he said is going to be false, I would think. <laughs> well, they all say that. They all, like, matter of fact, George Meyer was, my wife and I were watching something where she was like, the devil was jumping up and down on Jesus in hell. I was just like, man, this is so different. Yeah, that's obvious. They obviously must have that. They must, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely not what Renahan would say in his book. I'm certain. That's what it is. That's that's believable. That other stuff is just yeah. It's almost like the bowing of the knee, like forced 
confession of names, but Every, but I remember studying through that back when I preached in the first year, and that's the conclusion I was I was most rounded in was this idea that Christ spiritually did descend to preach victory over the captives who were basically being held in Sheol um, and would be one day cast into the lake of fire. Tough passages. All good, everybody? Enjoyed meeting tonight. Get back into the swing of that.